The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 65 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, Relationship Therapist. The Pobscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations with kick-ass therapists and instigators of change. We examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and within the world around us. Conversations around dismantling systemic racism are becoming increasingly urgent and persistent. Some might feel lost on how to contribute, even when your intentions are good. No one wants to do it wrong. We're all needed in this movement. We have to start by asking the question, what needs dismantling within my own life, within my own realm? And what needs expansion? What's the difference between anti-racism and liberation psychology? What can we do to move through the discomfort that we feel within the discourse around race? In this episode, I connect with Shauna Murray Brown, the director and founder of Kindred Wellness, an integrative practice in Baltimore dedicated to honoring culture, expanding mindfulness, and holding safer spaces for changemakers, black women leaders, and their families to heal. Shauna is a licensed clinical social worker, Qigong instructor, speaker, and mind-body medicine practitioner. She provides liberation-focused, integrative psychotherapy, community healing spaces and groups that honor the power of movement, breath, and connection to nature, and professional workshops. She is a consultant to trailblazing organizations ready to tackle tough topics about race from the heart center. And she's often invited to speak to audiences about transforming racist mental health models, overcoming intergenerational trauma, and healing using the mind-body modality. In this episode, we're discussing why we can't continue to use the same concepts, practices, and applications for all. Shauna has liberation psychology dialed in, and she shares how we all have an opportunity to recognize the needs of black and brown persons inside and outside of the therapy space, and hold space for those who have different experiences than we do. Together, we talk about the importance of honoring ancient wisdoms that have been repackaged and branded as wellness in the Western world. We ask tough questions regarding trauma in black communities, how we can best be of service to the movement and the community, and in what ways we can move past common assumptions regarding black and brown clients in therapy. Join us as Shauna shares her call to action. So welcome back. Today I am joined by Shauna and I'm so excited for where this conversation is going to go. Welcome Shauna. Hi. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a very interesting story and from everything that we've spoken about, I think that that's really the place where we need to begin. So before I even tell our listeners anything about where we're going in this conversation, why don't you introduce yourself and bring us into what your story is? Awesome. Yes. So my name is Shauna Murray Brown. I'm an integrative psychotherapist, a mind-body medicine practitioner, and a trainer for trailblazing clinicians and organizations. I'm located in Baltimore City, where I was born and raised throughout the Baltimore metro area. I would say it all really started from this question I had about my childhood experiences. 
really witnessing my mother and learning about my lineage and histories and, and the women in my family of them. I'm really struggling with things having to do with addiction and abuse and trauma and how that impacted me growing into a woman. And so I found myself in undergrad. I went to school at the University of Maryland College Park, really at a crossroads about who I was as a woman and how my mother's story was connected to that, how that informed the way I was interacting with other folks, right? My mother, through her challenges and struggles with addiction, left her both an amazing mother, meaning like she was really, really present and really insightful and really intentional about bringing me forward, while also her pain took her away from her presence as I got older. And Mm -hmm. so left me having the experiences of being neglected, of experiencing homelessness and experiencing sort of the turmoil that happens in families that have overcome sort of generational issues with addiction. Addictions and trauma. Mm-hmm. Addictions and trauma. And so in college, I was basically like, I need to figure this out. <laughs> Why are all of my relationships so unhinged with other women? How can I fix this? And I started the journey then to figure out how to heal myself, right? I found myself in other sister circles and really learning about breathing and yoga. Um, Mindfulness wasn't a thing then, but that's what we call it now. (laughs) And this really deep study about African and Black-centered ideological practice and really like learning and reconnecting to why was it that so many other Black families and Black women seem to have a similar story around trauma. And so... Then I'm going to pause you there because that question alone is a deep and powerful question. It is. And it's one that I think we normalized. So like people of color have normalized that this is just sort of a part of the way things are. And we, you know, sort of leave it there and then don't do anything else with it. And then those that are on the outside looking in just sort of accept that as like the stereotype, the way it's supposed to be, I guess, because it's the way it is, but never delving into, well, how do you heal that? What is the root of that? And getting uncomfortable with those truths. Which are the next questions that you started asking yourself? Right. I was just like, we need to figure this out because I can't pass this down. I started to learn about epigenetics and intergenerational trauma. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be somebody's mother at some point, I need to fix this whole situation. (laughs) So, and just to be clear for our listeners, when you say I need to fix this whole situation, you're talking about you and your life, but you're going way beyond that too. Yeah, so at first, I was really just at me and my life. I was just like, how can I make sure that I don't fall into the same patterns of pain and ways of dealing with pain that my family has, that my family has? And so, when so it I fell, started on that personal level. It started there. And I was just like, what are we going to do? What's happening? And I did a lot of work in that, but it deepened when I went to study social work. When I came back home into Baltimore, And I went through a rites of passage process, which is sort of central to these. I think it's central to many traditional practices, but is central to the way that 
African ideological practice worked when sort of preparing a person for adulthood, right? We mm-hmm. find this in many traditions. And I, when I, once I began to understand that one of the things that was ripped from Black people when we were stolen from our land and brought to these lands was a lot of our cultural practices. And so my thing was, I'm going to get back to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went through a rites of passage process with an elder woman who really set, I was able to sit at her feet and really dig deep into all of the things that I needed to work on. And you did this where? Just ground us in place. Okay. It happened in many places, but so my godmother was in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was still in Baltimore. So I would travel to Indiana. She would travel here. And sometimes we would go places together. Gotcha. And it wasn't just myself. I had God sisters. So we went through this process together. It was a year long experience. So we went through all the seasons and really sort of rooted in what are some of the traditional concepts of healing that may have been ripped from us and how, what does it look like for us to reclaim Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. And so from that point, that informed all of the work that I do, right? I was like, oh, I'm supposed to work with women. I'm supposed to support the healing of women of color and the generational past and African um, identity theological practice that is central to black culture. And I just need to infuse that in all the work that I'm doing. I was like, F, um, the social work school isn't teaching me the things I need to support the healing of black people. Why are all of the, my white colleagues seem so afraid of black people? What's that? Like I was sort of asking even more questions, right? But from a place where I had done some of my own healing work. And so I was able to respond in a way of really analyzing What's happening here? Right? Like systematically. Right. And why are all of my colleagues, if we're in here studying social work and supposed to be about social justice, why are all of my colleagues still so uncomfortable with these concepts of race? Why are they still rooted in these stereotypes unintentionally and well meaning, but not really willing to face some of the stuff that what it brings up for them in their own history? It's as if they're not seeing. They weren't in the darkness and they're not seeing. Absolutely. Not heart centered at all. And I couldn't blame them. Right. Because that is contrary to the way that American culture sort of allows us to function. It requires us to get emotional in a way that many of us feel uncomfortable. Right. We don't like getting uncomfortable, do we? Listen, (laughs) you can't be comfortable talking about this stuff. Right. And you have to create space for it. So I was angry, right? I hadn't yet gotten to how to incorporate the breath with this anger. I was just pissed. (laughs) Which is a great place to begin, by the way. Yeah, I was really just like, I mean, it was a great place to begin, but it was a really horrible space to sit in because I didn't know what the answer was. Well, talk about that discomfort. Yeah. I mean, you were coming face to face with discomfort and really being challenged to to be in your own discomfort in order to help figure out the answers around this. And I don't know that I was helpful at this point. I felt like I was just pissed. You were journeying. You were journeying at this point. At this point in your story where we are right now, you were deep in your journey. That's where you were. (laughs) Gathering insight, trying to understand. And I think that same essence of trying to understand, trying to be compassionate, but also being pissed. (laughs) 
follow through. Yeah. Well, I think this is important for many of our listeners because you're bringing passion into this, right? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how passion informs your life's work and your direction. Absolutely. And then from there, from that place of gathering all that passion and direction, you're going to dive deeper into the work. You're going to figure out how to be of service, right? Mm-hmm. And so much on this podcast, I'm talking to people who are change makers, who know that something inside of them is they're here for a reason. They're here to do some really important work. Yes. Yeah. But then where does it go from there? What do they do with it? And you're guiding us through your particular process. And so what happened after that, I left school, I worked in child welfare, I worked in sex abuse investigations and foster care and policy and community organizing. Oh, talk I, about all the uncomfortable places. You went there. <laughs> yeah, I went those places. Yeah. All of them. Imagine them. You went there. Yeah. And it was angry again, right? Thinking about, well, what programs are being offered in my community? Why are they centering Black culture? Why are they riddled with so many of these still upstanding assumptions about what it means to be Black, the textbook version of, oh, yeah, they're really religious, and Black people don't trust mental health professionals, and, you know, just really on a surface level understanding of what it means for for um, melanated folks in America. And so I worked in all these places, worked in the university system, worked in a residential treatment center, and finally found myself studying mind-body medicine you know, going through an intense training, you know, applying it in my life, applying it with my clients. And that really sort of changed my outlook about, okay, this is more in alignment with what I've been, the questions I've been asking. Yes. In terms of where the healing comes from. Exactly. Right. Being, going within, being centered, honoring your body, feeling your feelings, noticing where it shows up in your body and using that as a guide. And these things are, rooted very much so like repackaged like mind body medicine is repackaged the indigenous knowledge of africa of china of all of india of all these places all of it it's repackaging ancient wisdom exactly exactly and so it was important for me to do two things to be grateful for the repackaging so that i could get it and for me to understand that it was repackaging so that i could center those cultures and not the white frame of what was happening. And I was able to do that because of the wisdom and the elders that I had around me and my willingness to sort of go deeper in training, right? So go deeper in training, like traveling to Africa and exploring that, going deeper in training, like studying Qigong and and really becoming a practitioner of that. And so asking those questions. So slow down one second. Asking questions, right? Asking questions is a huge part of going deeper into wisdom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. And being okay with the fact that some people may look, not know the answer, right? And may get uncomfortable with the fact that you're asking a question they don't know the answer to. Yeah. What that might lift up for them. And or you get into a space where asking the question causes you to ask more questions that you don't know the answer to. It's kind of going into the unknowing. Exactly. Yeah. Right? That that wisdom lives in that space of unknowingness. That we don't need to know all the answers, but wisdom lives in the search and the quest and the willingness to dive in. And alongside that, it's 
also being okay with the fact that many times you don't find the wisdom in books or online, right? It's sitting with whatever nugget, whatever piece has been provided to you and then sitting in silence and exploring your intuition, exploring what comes up for you and finding meaning for yourself. You just talked about sitting with your intuition. And I think this is something that we're disconnected from as a culture, as a society. And I was disconnected from it. Even as I was studying it, it's always a practice, you know, like even while I'm talking to you, I have to remind myself, okay, breathe, Shauna, right? Like recenter while you're sharing this so that you can hear whatever other things you're supposed to say in this moment. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think maybe a little later in this conversation, I want to circle back into intuition, but I want to continue on with your story and your why. Awesome. So in the beginning, my why was I want to honor my mother's story and her passion. I want to create a different narrative, one that wasn't what was me? My mother struggled with addiction. Look at me, a little black girl. You can, you know, support me. I'm different, right? That's what would happen in the beginning, right? When I applied for college, when I was walking, and when I would share my story, those hearing me would go to, wow, you're so amazing. Wow, you're so brilliant. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. And I didn't like that feeling. So I want to tell you that as I'm sharing the story now, I want to give people the opportunity to check what comes up for them, right? Because what tends to happen is while she went through all of these things, she was homeless, her mother experienced all these things, wow, she's so strong. And it's like, actually, I'd rather you sit with and check in with your heart around what does it feel like in your body to sit with the fact that another human being experienced this and that maybe you have or you haven't experienced it. And instead of judging or going to the comfortable place of detaching to just sit with and connect to, okay, all right. And just sit and notice what's coming up for you. Mm-hmm. And I say that because what I'm going, where my story goes next is far more uncomfortable. <laughs> Take us there. And What a wonderful lead-in in in terms of an invitation to really be with ourselves. Certainly. I'm also saying it because I stopped telling my story and it's been so, I haven't really shared a lot of what I'm about to share because I didn't know before how to invite people to go deeper and to go higher at the same time. Right? Okay. I was disgusted with the pity. So no pity, y'all. Okay. So I'm journeying through this experience. I find myself working at a university, really loving working with students, really being able to apply these concepts into my work in community, really understanding how to deepen my work when I was started doing work with girls in the community, really connecting to Black businesses, and really sort of trying to live collective work and responsibility as it is connected to the Ibuzo Saba in African and Black culture, right? And really trying to be self-determined around not being reliant on outside institutions to provide for community. So I really sat with the wisdom of the girls in that moment that I was serving in my girls program, Sister Soul Quest, really sat with that wisdom with the women I was serving as I later developed the Heal Assist Project and then started my private practice serving women and girls, right? And so so I'm doing this while I'm working with students and 
then the Baltimore uprising happened. The Black Lives Matter movement starts to gain traction. And I'm deeply moved, um, really concerned about what to do with the collective experience of pain. And I'm just really being present for people in community. And so then my birthday comes up. I was turning 28 at the time. And I'm driving in my car. I'm listening to India Ari Yellow, <laughs> which is my favorite color. <laughs> and I'm on the way to the spa. And I'm dancing and grooving on 695. If you ever come to DMV, 695. Okay, so I'm driving to downtown Baltimore. And I get a call from my sister, which was really rare. Because my sister usually forgets my birthday. <laughs> and so I'm sort of slowing down. I'm slowing us down here. So I get this call from my sister and I'm like, oh my gosh, my sister remembered my birthday. And I pick up on my Bluetooth, y'all. I'm not driving on 695, holding my cell phone. And she says, where are you? I'm like, I'm in my car. She's like, are you at work? I'm like, of course not. I don't work on my birthday. She's like, it's your birthday? And I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> right? And so I'm like, I roll my eyes thinking, okay, she's just calling sporadically to say hi. And I'm like, yes, girl, it's my birthday. What? And she's like, I really wish it wasn't your birthday. And I was like, yeah, well, what's about to happen next, right? So she tells me that my brother, Darrell Samuel Murray, was found dead in his jail cell hmm. in Cumberland, Maryland. And I'm going to breathe. <sighs> she told me that my grandmother received a call that my brother was found unresponsive and that that's all the information that they gave. Oh. Yeah. So I am sort of in disbelief. And what comes following that is, of course, like waves of extreme grief, extreme disconnection, extreme seeking, extreme pain, right? And the interesting thing about this moment is that it's my birthday, right? Yeah. That I was deeply connected to my brother. But the other aspect of this that's interesting and that I want folks to consider is that my brother, he had been incarcerated for selling drugs on the street. And he was supposed to serve maybe two or three years, but he had been in jail for it like seven, right? And so he was already experiencing an extended period of being incarcerated. So there was already some things that were happening that were unjust that we were still trying to figure out how to navigate. And my brother, when my sister and my father and my auntie went to go visit him in the, the weeks before, had stated that if we didn't figure out a way to get him out of there, that the correctional officers were going to kill him. So he had expressed weeks before, if y'all don't get me out of here, they're going to kill me. Like, I'm just telling you right now, y'all need to get me out of here. I want to come home. And, you know, Chorus, you know, we're like, listen, Darrell, just follow the rules. You're going to get out soon. Like, we'll come and visit you more. Like, it'll be fine. We're thinking, okay, he's paranoid. Like, what's going on? And I want to pause here, right? Because this is what tends to happen. Black and brown people tell you something is happening. 
something is happening. These people aren't treating me fairly. The system is doing me wrong. Get me out of here. I need your help. And in our ignorance and our wishful thinking and our inability to be able to connect with many of the truths and realities of other people. Stop us from being able to hear. Exactly. Stop us from being able to hear. Stop us from leveling up to the emergency. But the other thing is, even though I believed him, there was nothing we could do. Power. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. So, yes, he had written the congressman. My brother was an advocate for himself. He reported. I mean, there's reports upon reports. We have all of these yellow slips from all of the reports he made around being assaulted, around being threatened. Right. And he was silenced. Right. And so the other thing that tends to happen is we also devalue folks that have been incarcerated, not understanding the history of oppressive practices, especially for those that are non-violent offenders and the impact that oppression has on how it connects or leads folks to being incarcerated. So essentially what happens is we find ourselves advocating, fighting, and trying to find the answer. And, you know, we get not a lot of support because we don't have a lot of coins. We don't have a lot of money, right? We're not, right? And so what comes from this experience is I, in my grieving, I take a break. I find myself laid off from my position at this university. And I find myself sitting with spirit wondering, how can I honor my brother in his life? How can I honor my ancestry and the others who've had had experiences of their lives being taken by, being killed by America, right? My brother's life was taken. He was killed by America, right? So it's not just, you know, this individual person that happened. There's a system that allows for people like my brother and many of the others who we've seen as just hashtag names, but never really connecting, never really recognizing. And in this, in this moment of your story, this is where it becomes really personal. If it wasn't already personal enough, this is where it becomes more personal. I would say it becomes a crossroads where I had to decide if I was going to disconnect because of the pain or if I was going to see if I could find a way to do all of the things and listen to the responsibility to call people to action, right? It's always, this work has always been personal for me and, and really spirit-centered, but this is where it was a threshold I had to go through. And so I then committed full-time to my practice, you know, continued providing therapy, but started to shift in a way where I knew I could, I wasn't going to be the activist in the streets um, fighting, but I had to figure out how I could use my gifts to still honor the folks that were doing the varying levels of advocacy and change-making work so that we can make systemic change. And so the way that that shifted or turned inward was it highlighted the things I already knew, the frustration I already had from the school school of social work. I had me zoom in on how to honor my brother in doing this work of supporting therapists and really being present and listening to the pain and honoring people of color on the couch, of dismantling some of the white supremacist ideologies in therapeutic and counseling practices, and supporting change makers in the city of Baltimore and beyond. 
So that was a lot that you just put out there in terms of what your work is. And I, we need to slow down and unpack that because there's so much in there. And, and some of it for some of our listeners might even be prickling. Yeah. Right. And so I want to go deeper with you into the work that you do. I want us to have a conversation where we unpack it, where we understand it, because so much of your work is about, as I understand it, as I metabolize my understanding of you, which may not be full. I want to be clear about that. Right. But it's a systemic dismantling of what isn't working yeah. and a bringing to light the possibility for other ways of doing things. Absolutely. And highlighting that the work that I was doing that I am doing in my office on the couch and the work that I'm doing in community needs to be something that's happening on a collective basis that the vibration and the love and the... That one person can't do it alone? No. That that there needs to be a community, a collective practice and that I have wisdom that needs to be shared with others. This is an invitation. Absolutely. We need to get to work (laughs) (laughs) at a different vibration, being heart-centered and facing the tough conversations that we've been avoiding since the beginning of American history. So what are some of the assumptions that we need to dive into and break apart? Absolutely. Okay. So like what happens is folks assume that the idea that the therapist can be unaffected by the client stories, right? The idea that we're just mirrors. If we just hold up the mirror, support the client and seeing themselves in the mirror that we've done our job, right? So that's one, right? And the truth of that is that we're all actually moved by each other's stories and that the work really happens when we check into our bodies and ourselves and grow from the stories that we're interfaced with. Yes. Like that's the way for us to navigate change, right? To really be present, to really feel, right? To give ourselves some time after their session to do our own personal work. But the assumption that we are just tabla rasa, that's (laughs) (laughs) What was that word you just used? That we're what? Tabla rasa, that we are blank slate, that we, Uh, you know, (laughs) this blank slate idea. We can't be. We come in as a human. We're connecting with another human. We know that the work, any healing work, any healing modality, whether it's touch or talk, it happens in the context of relationship. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Listen, that then leads me to what the second assumption, right? The second fallacy is that what I do with my white client, I can do the same with my black client. That these concepts and these modalities that we're learning, CBT, DBT, solution focus, all of these practices that if we follow it by the book, that if we get this training, that we apply it the same way to the black client, to the brown client, to the white client, and we're doing a good job as long as we understand that. Let me play devil's advocate. Why? Why can't we apply the same to all of our clients, enlighten our listeners, enlighten us. Because the kind of pain and suffering that people have to contend with, the people of color have to contend with, is constant and uh-huh. without relief, right? And so if you understand... You're talking about microaggressions right now, even uh-huh. in the therapy room. Listen, microaggressions, I'm also talking about the root of 
all of these ideological practices that we show up with, right? They are rooted in whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like... Yes, I'm going there with you, so... No, and I'm just breathing. Yeah. The founders of these concepts are brilliant in their own right, but they're coming from a framework that is white. It's a white wellness framework, right? And that white wellness framework has to be checked. So you need to check the origins of the theoretical framework you're using. And you have to center blackness. You have to center culture and context in the work. So just knowing and getting a bunch of certifications under your belt isn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Getting culturally competent. (laughs) And we'll just say that you're using air quotes there, as you say, culturally competent, because our (laughs) listeners can't see that. And it's really important to know. Like, it's no, there's no such thing, right? Like, you can't be competent in my culture. <laughs> no, you know, we can only be competent in our own if we can even strive to be that. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. I want to take us on a little, it's a slight detour. We might not have hit all of the assumptions and I want to come back. But if uh-huh. you're telling us what not to do, I also want to ask you what to do. What are the best practices? Absolutely. And so I guess the one thing that I need to add to the fallacies, right, is this idea that when you hold space, once you figure out how to hold space in the therapy room that you've done your job, and this sort of leads into what to do, right? So, And this is in the therapy room, but it's also in life and culture and society. It's, exactly. it's, it's how we take in the essence of another person who has a, a different experience of life than we do. Yes. So the idea that you're an individual with categories of involvement in the world and that you can hold separately, right? That you don't have to show up the same place everywhere is a fallacy. So what this means is, so say, considering the first fallacy that we're unaffected by our clients' stories, what to do, right, is to give yourself permission to sit with and to process with a wise supervisor, like a consultant to be able to really process what is coming up for you, what some of the assumptions are that are coming up for you, and what healing work you have to do individually. Too often as practitioners, we spend so much time holding space for the healing of our clients that we don't do our own healing or recognize that our clients are often reflecting what we need to spend time healing. You know, I just went to a really great little local organization, guild kind of organization group for mental health professionals. And one of the things that the leader of this particular group asked us, we were talking about different stories and we're bringing up different clients in our minds. And she asked us to really think about what it was about this particular story, this particular client that made us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Doing that in group space, doing that in individual space. In a space where you can be courageous. and Where you can be courageous and process it. It's not just something that you're like, oh yeah, this makes me uncomfortable and move on. But where you really sit with that and where you move into the discomfort. Yeah. Moving in, considering asking yourselves the questions, reflecting. And then the second thing is to get trained, right? So I offer training for trailblazing clinicians, right? That is really about holding space for practitioners that are interested in um, the liberation of our people, right? The liberation of black and brown people and their experiences here in the United States. So finding... Can you tell us more about your training? I can. So... so, (laughs) I think I was going to let you just go right past that, did you? (laughs) Hope not. Right. So, 
So one training that's coming up in May of 2018 here in Baltimore is called Healing Be More Activist. It's a second part of an initiative I have running here in the city of Baltimore to support the healing of Baltimore's activists where they can learn skills to healing themselves and then so they can get access to practitioners that are committed to their transformational healing that is liberation focused. So and this is this is geared for everyone or this is geared for practitioners? So the healing spaces for activists in the city of Baltimore is for black and brown activists. activists. Mm -hmm. The training is so that no matter what you look like, no matter what your cultural background is, you can come if you are interested in holding space for black and brown. For the black and brown activists. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that is, I just want to like give that some space because it it feels like something that all of us aren't talking about the work of being an activist, right? Like there's, and we're not, and I think too often when we think the word activist, like that's really for lack of a better term, right? A catch-all. So change maker, advocate, someone that's moved around the need for social change and social justice for seeking freedom and community or collectively and individually. Someone who's brave and bold and courageous and speaking up and saying, this doesn't feel right. I want to have a voice. Right. It's how, how does the practitioner, how do we hold the space for that person? Sometimes the person that needs space to be held is also us, right? Mm-hmm. But also providing a training. It's a two-day intensive at the Great Blacks and Wax Museum here in the city of Baltimore that centers Black culture, history, and liberation-focused frameworks, how to be liberation-focused in your work. So often we're anti-racist, right? We know we're against racism, but the question that I often call in and align with the law of attraction is, well, what are you for, right? What do we like to create, and how do we take these concepts of being against racism into the healing space? And then how can we support the practitioner after taking them into the healing space applying that into their body, their life, so that they can do the work of dismantling systemic racism and systemic oppression in the community. What does liberation focused mean to you? Well, to me, liberation focused means honoring the soul of Black folk, right? Mm -hmm. It is honoring the, the humanness and the experience and recognizing that we've never seen a world where folks are actually free, where everyone is free. Right. Because it really means breaking up with capitalism, which is a far deeper process that would take a whole It's not going to be done in 10 years. But it means really contending with what would make us be able to walk into the light, what would make black and brown people be able to truly exist without this constant anvil over our heads, wondering if we are safe, if we are valued, if we are loved. So it is collective, it's heart-centered, and it's honoring of of ancestry. And rooted in breath. (laughs) Right? Which is where I just went, right? Yeah, right? I'm listening to you and I'm just breathing it all in. And and a a great of that, a deep part of the experience that will happen at this training, the reason why we're having it at the Great Blacks and Wax Museum, is the only Blacks and wax museum in the United States 
you can you go and really delve into the stories of the ancestry of how we got to where we are and the stories of resilience and that we have wisdom. Black and brown people, we have theorists, we have concepts and wisdom that isn't being taught in our university settings. Folks don't even realize that there's a such thing as liberation psychology, black psychology. We don't know who Dr. Joy DeGroote-Leary is. We don't know that there's a Naeem Akbar, right? And we know our white theorists, but we have no clue about the genius that's been established specifically for the healing of Black and Brown people in these United States of America. Can I take us a step further? Yeah. Because I'm imagining that if we knew more Right. If this liberation focused work could touch more of us, if we had access to it, it would certainly help to liberate our black and brown fellow Americans. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that it wouldn't stop there, that the ripple would keep going. Absolutely. So liberation focused is a term that I was inspired by to sort of really envelope what could happen if we stopped being so white-centric and honored black and brown ideological practice. It's really a way of humanizing and honoring our existence. And when we do that, it's healing for everybody, right? Racism and white supremacy has not only harmed and traumatized black and brown people, it has dehumanized and roboticized, if that's a word, and really ripped white folks away from the honoring your own culture, your own existence, and your ability to be able to connect from a heart space with black and brown people, right? Like black and brown people are being assaulted on the outside for our existence and the way that we show up, where white folks are being assaulted from the inside, from the hearts, right? Where you've been indoctrinated for years from the way that you've been raised and your parents and the way they've been raised around how to disconnect and commodify yourselves to internalize superiority as opposed to really nourishing and nurturing your heart. Mm-hmm. So this is not like work that you, like, I mean, you're going to come to my training. So the training happens in Baltimore City and, you know, that specific training is for healing activists. But my liberation focused healing series is something that I travel with. Right. So organizations can invite me to come and do either a one day intensive or the entire series over a span of time to really transform either individual clinicians work, organizational practice and really contend with, well, with this particular case, how do I cope with this? What do I say if a black child, if I'm a white clinician and a black child across from me says that they wish they were white? How do I contend with that in the moment? How do I unpack that in my private space? And what do black and brown theorists understand the context of the impact of racism and white supremacy for black and brown people? What would they say to me about what my role is, right? Because the other fallacy is that folks are really uncomfortable, white folk, you're really, really uncomfortable with the concept of having to undo racism within themselves. They have no idea how to start. And what happens from that sort of angst and pain and emotion and frustration and overwhelm of the work is folks will say, look, there's no hope. 
look, maybe I'm no good at supporting black and brown people, right? Maybe I just should just wipe my hands of it and move on. But the truth is that over 90% of mental health practitioners in the United States are white, right? So if it was possible for me to say, look, let me make it easy for you guys. Only black people go to black and brown practitioners, even though that still wouldn't solve the problem because black and brown practitioners are also perpetuating white ideological practice. Trained in the same practices. Exactly. Right. So all of us. Until we get trained in this more liberation focused and until we start embodying and embracing the breath. Mm-hmm. For lack of something better, right? The breath is is the thing that connects. Yes. So it, until we come back to this place of bringing in a new way of seeing, a new ideology, no matter what color our skin is, we're perpetuating exactly this broken system. And and I want to say, I want to honor the fact the work is different depending on what level of privilege you have, right? So a, a white man coming into the space, his work is going to be different than a black queer practitioner. Their work is going to be different than a side gender woman, right? Because we're not blank slates. And because I want to come back, I I promised that I would come back to this because our intuition (laughs) plays into this. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And who are we without our intuition? Our intuition is in many ways what grounds us in our being. And staying with intuition, right? I'm so glad you brought us back because one of the things, the pushbacks, the things that I mentioned when I'm teaching Qigong, which is a traditional Chinese form of meditation and other mind-body modalities is that mindfulness is being with the breath, but centering in your own spiritual system is where intuition comes in. Because I believe that intuition is spirit or the higher power, the higher being, whomever you call on, speaking to you and through you so you can be a vessel for someone, for your own and someone else's transformation. And so intuition is the way and that's where the healing happens and so this is a ongoing transformative process but it has to start with recognizing that there are some things that are broken there's some fallacies that need to be righted there's some things that could be viewed from a more african centered perspective and framework and just because it's african-centered doesn't mean that you have to be (laughs) black or african-american to contend with it it is a more whole holistic view of the world and how we are doing things Mm -hmm. so the work is ongoing but i invite anyone and everyone who's listening to connect with me so that we can begin this work. And where can our listeners find you? Where can they connect with you? So everyone can find me. I'm on Facebook. So you can find me, Shauna Mary Brown, LCSWC. My practice, Facebook is Kindred Wellness. And my website is www.shaunamurraybrownwithane.com. And we'll link links in our show notes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the training that's happening in May at the Great Blacks and Wax Museum here in Baltimore for Healing Be More Activist is uh, trailblazingclinician.eventsbrite.com. Okay. And you'll send me all of those links so we can make sure that they're clickable in the show notes. So however you're listening to this podcast, if you want to learn more about these trainings and Shauna's work, there are show notes attached to this episode and you can literally click on those links to learn more. You don't have to 
remember all this stuff and type it in. <laughs> yeah, no. This would be so hard. So many words. Yeah. <laughs> so we're making it easy for you to find out more. Shauna, I want to just take a breath with you and thank you for joining with us today. And um, well, I'm going to be in touch because I have some ideas about some other amazing things we could collaborate on. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. So let's take that breath, right? I'd invite everybody to get comfortable. Place your hands just below your belly button. Close your eyes and look at your nose and fill your belly with air. Breathing in. Holding it for a moment. And slowly honoring your breath on your exhale. And doing that a few more times at your own pace. And then giving gratitude for your breath. Thank you. Yes! Are you ready to stop conforming? Stop inhibiting your true nature? (sighs) To remember your deepest knowings? To connect back to your intuition and reintegrate all your fragmented parts? Then join our Wild Women online discussion groups that we're launching at the end of April 2018. We're joining together to inspire one another to reawaken the creative wildness that lives within our souls. This is a journey for inspired women and brave men to reclaim your truest nature. We're remembering together the wisdom that reintegrates our belief in ourselves. We're meeting online the last Thursday of the month for six consecutive months from April through September. Learn more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. In addition to my relationship therapy practice in New York, I mentor, coach, and consult kick-ass therapists and instigators of change. If that sounds like you, then I invite you to click the link in our show notes and learn more about working with me. Join our community on Facebook and find us on social media at Pobscast. You're also invited to send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed today's show and that you'll join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.